Namaste everyone. Welcome to the Charvak podcast. It's time to discuss one more book and uh, today's book is The Indian Conservative by Jaitheet Rao. I'm really excited uh, to discuss this book because after a long time, I mean if if you're a regular viewer of the Charvak podcast, you know that I keep talking about how we need to bring our thoughts together. When I say we, I mean the Indian non-left or the Indian political discourse. There needs to be a definition of what defines the non-left in India. So uh, Mr Rao thanks for coming on the podcast thank you for having me it's a pleasure so, and an honor to be with you so sir i wanted to start with the you know i ask this question to everybody who who comes on the podcast especially when we discuss books so why did you think that you needed to write a book like this what 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 exactly was going on uh, in your uh, mental framework when you were like you know what no it's time somebody needs to define the indian conservative you know in the ncr region in the last few years a new university has come up called ashoka university and i have been a supporter of that university for some years and i was chatting with rudrankshu mukherji who was then vice chancellor and is now chancellor of the university and i basically told rudrankshu i said the problem with colleges and universities like you is the vast majority of the social science and humanities faculty tend to be leftists uh, and therefore your students are getting brainwashed in from my perspective the wrong ideas uh, so what do you think if i come and spend some time giving them lectures from the conservative perspective he was very supportive in fact he attended my lectures and he encouraged me to come to the campus and give those lectures which i did um you know i didn't do a great job the first lecture because i sat down and spoke it was not all that effective second lecture was better but anyway the lectures were conducted at the end of it rudrankshu told me he said you need to convert this into a book and he put me in touch with chiki sarkar who's the publisher of jagannath books Uh, who he knows quite well i introduced me to her uh and then she read it and liked it and that's the story of how the book came about so it is a lecture so notes that have been converted into a book well with, it's always nice that uh, a lecture note series gets converted into a book because in my view when when you're trying to put your ideas across to students you always go through a phase where the students are going to challenge it the students are going to ask the uh, i'm sure the many students would have asked and so get bored with it, it. <laughs> many times yeah. get bored with it you have to keep yeah. them awake and alive and interested yeah, yeah. so 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 that, that's always nice to hear so i wanted to start with this sir so in your yeah. book uh, you you use the example uh, of uh, you know swaminathan ayer where you say that uh, there is a degree of semantic confusion about what constitutes conservatism so i actually wanted to harp down over there and i'm going to connect it to one key character that gets i think mentioned the most in my view i mean i i'm not done a content analysis but yeah, from what i can recall from the book i think the one serious character uh, figure in the book that you have always referred to throughout the journey of the book is raja ramon roy now i want to talk about this use of the word conservatism now here's my when i looked at it now there is, there is a lot of resistance when it comes to some sort of a discourse in what i i always use the word the non left personally because i don't know how because i genuinely don't understand whether india has a right wing or not 
I, I genuinely don't think India does that. But now, why, why did you decide to use the word in a very specific way, the Indian conservative? And when you mean to say the Indian conservative, you have used Raja Ramon Roy as, a, as an example of that. Now, a lot of people, when will they will listen to the name Raja Ramon Roy, especially people who are, uh, you know, sympathetic to what I call the, the larger BJP, RSS, Hindutva complex, they will get the shock of their life. Uh, the reason they'll get the shock of their life is because in their mental framework, they have always associated Raja Ram Mohan Roy with the initial founding fathers of leftism in India or whatever you want to call it. So, so can you elaborate on this semantic uh, confusion as or uh, or as it is claimed by Swaminathan Iyer? Actually, you've raised two separate issues. The Swaminathan Iyer controversy basically was around the Indian constitution. What Swaminathan Iyer said was, you are arguing that the Indian constitution is a conservative document. Whereas it is a radical document, it talks about equality, which was never there in conservative Indian tradition. There was always differences of caste and gender. Uh, the idea of equality was a radical and revolutionary one. So by calling it a conservative document, you are running into a semantic thicket. And I that was a very valid position. So I went back and spent a lot of time thinking about it. And then actually I concluded that in fact I was right. And the reason was I looked at it as process. For conservatives, process is important. It is very important. Conservatives are not against change. The idea that conservatives resist change is completely wrong. Either Edmund Burke or Disraeli or Raja Ramon Wright, none of them were against change. They all wanted change. But And they wanted constructive change. They wanted it slow. They wanted it constitutional. And in the process of change, they were very keen that the good things of the past are not eliminated. The French Revolution, you attack the Bastille, you destroy everything, you destroy the good things of the past also. The Russian Revolution, you kill the Tsar, you destroy everything good about uh, the Romanovs. So that is not what... Uh, conservatism is. And then I went back and looked at the history of the Indian constitution. Going back to the 1780s, when the first uh, reform uh, bill and then the uh, Pitt India Regulatory Act and the Pitt India Act were passed, uh, and then subsequently over time, the Charter Acts, the Queen's Proclamation of 1858, the Minto reforms, the Montague Kenford reforms, the Government of India Act of 1935, and then I said, by God, this is a gradual evolutionary constitutional process. And by God, the Constitution of India of January 26, 1950, two thirds of it is almost verbatim. Government of India Act of 1935. If this is not an evolutionary constitutional process, then nothing is. This is not a revolutionary attack the Bastille. Uh, Petrograd, Soviets, grabbing power process. And I contrasted it with Pakistan. Pakistan did not give itself a constitution. 
and in fact gave themselves a revolutionary. The revolution actually happened in Pakistan. It was evolutionary in India. So that's a Swaminathan Iyer controversy. The second issue that you've alluded to is Ram Mohan Roy. Now there's two, three interesting things about Ram Mohan The first thing, and that many people do not admit, and some people do not want to admit. The fact is Ram Mohan Roy was a supporter of British rule. And this is something that people don't like to admit. He believed that the Indo-Western encounter, which just so happened to be midwifed by the British, it could have been midwifed by somebody else, but in the historical circumstances, the British were the midwives of the Indo-Western encounter. He believed that it was an important encounter and we would benefit from learn from it. When one in visiting French uh, aristocrat, Jacquemont, I think, came to uh, Calcutta, uh, Ram Mohan Roy said, I want British rule to continue for a long time so that we can learn a lot from them. So he had this constructive approach. And he also, so that's a very conservative trait. He was not doing something revolutionary. Let's get rid of the British. Let's have anarchy. No. Secondly, even his attack on Sati, as I said, conservatives are not for every single practice of the past. We want constructive change. Now, Lincoln, you can argue, was a conservative, not, that's not a matter we can get into, but he was not in support of slavery. So it's not true that a conservative today will support slavery or something. Conservatives do believe in constructive change and those aspects of the past. But how did Raja Ram Mohan Roy attack Sati? He attacked Sati by studying the Upanishads and saying the Upanishads do not condone Sati. So not by rejecting tradition. He was very certain that while rejecting certain bad aspects of current tradition, we are not going to reject everything about tradition. And that was, I call this a conservative trick somewhere in my book, where the conservative will quote an earlier scripture in order to attack a present practice and saying this is not really sanctioned by earlier scripture and therefore advocate and support change. So Rajaram Mohan Roy politically was for continued British rule, was for gradual emancipation of India, not for a revolutionary shock effect change. And how did he attack Sati? He wrote a letter to the Viceroy, to the Governor General. It was a very constitutional way, a deputation. You know, conservatives love committees, uh, memoranda, signing stuff. We are against going on the streets and agitating and throwing stones. It's a very constitutional, proper process. And he uh, got public opinion in his favor and eventually persuaded Bentinck that this was the right thing to do. So that is why Raja Ram Mohan Roy, to my mind, is the founding father of modern Indian conservatism. Have I answered your concerns? Yeah. So I have a follow-up on this. Now, yeah. when we talk about this, uh, ha have you ever given this idea a thought that when we frame the entire political discussion, so I'm trying to uh, probably think of the, of the potential problems people might raise with you when they read the book, especially from the people who, uh, who come from uh, the... 
from the camp where they are opposed to the left would you uh, would you how would you answer someone now i i personally am fascinated by your framing uh, personally and i agree with a lot of things you say but let's say if there was a typical uh, question raised to you where uh, why would you want to call people who uh, conservative in the first place are we following too much of what they call a quote unquote western paradigm so how would you answer that question i think the large sections of the book are devoted to this hmm. modern political conservatism is associated with edmund burke uh disraeli hamilton a uh, madison i mean there is a it's a very anglo american political view it's not very popular in the continent and there is therefore this thing that hey this is one more anglo american idea just like the marxists have taken one you are also hmm. taking and that's a very yeah. valid way of uh, uh, attacking it what i am trying to say is either by accident or by coincidence or because the great minds of the world do think alike the traditions of indian conservatism go back to the shanti parva of the mahabharata and the tiruval tirukural of tiruvallur so these are not purely imported intellectual conceits there is an amazing synchronicity in ideas between tiruvalluvar uh, vyasa and shanti parva and burke and israeli and hamilton so so let us not get carried away that these are western ideas they are not in the modern vocabulary a lot of western ideas are used but frankly you don't need to go there the wellsprings of indian conservatism start with the shanti parva Start start with the Purusharthas, which are very central to both uh, Varluvar and to Vyasa. So I am arguing that con- Indian conservatism, yes, of course, we have been influenced by Burke and Disraeli and so on, and there's nothing wrong with that influence. But that doesn't mean it is an imported doctrine. In fact, it has got very very deep uh, roots in our own tradition, which have been ignored by the left. which have in fact been suppressed by the left uh, because they don't like like it. they would rather prefer that that this tradition not not be emphasized all right mr rao now i want to go into the most specific part of the book which i think is uh, you know when the as they say the rubber meets the road this is bjp because you spent some time uh, in the book uh-huh. talking about the bjp and i actually wanted to read uh, a particular paragraph from the book uh, sure. on page 121 where you say conservatives have to try and influence the elements within the bjp who subscribe to burke's call for changing in order to conserve we need to stress that rejecting the historical legacy of the raj is not only not smart but it goes against the views of bunking and vivekananda there was something providential about that association conservatives are likely to meet with resistance from the anti makale putra lobby within the bjp and its affiliates nevertheless this effort must not be dropped sometimes i tell that the bachelor makale was a reborn rishishringa who propitiated the gods in order to ensure that king dashratha was blessed with a son just as the uh, that young bachelor rishishringa blessed us blessed us with all blessed us all by ensuring the birth of prince rama so too has makale blessed this land <laughs> now you're going to ruffle a lot of feathers by uh, saying what you have said over here so so here's my question mr rao so how do we define the line now he, i'm i'm trying to think about how an average 
a bjp uh, hindutva complex supporter would come back to you on this they would be like uh, you know what it was not uh, to the uh, the underlying assumption is that we would not change without the raj they might accuse you of something like that that we are incapable of making these changes ourselves they would go and say well you know we were gradually changing without the raj too so why why do we say that the raj is such a good thing and we needed a macaulay or macaulay was a net positive or macaulay was not all that bad so what would you say to that sir i don't uh, buy this thing about we would have changed with or without the raj i i tend to agree uh the indo western encounter as i say happened to come in modern times to us through the british midwife that is simply a historical circumstance and therefore the the real thing that i would draw the attention of these people is especially since you said the bjp the most of the thinking people of the 18th and early 19th century in india actually realized that the onset of british rule was providential because it actually liberated the hindus from muslim rule it actually gave hindus an opportunity to practice their religion freely which they couldn't earlier if you think about it in the entire northern indian plain from peshawar through dhaka there are no ancient uh, hindu temples uh, the first large hindu temple was built during the british raj the birla mandir in delhi in 1936 otherwise the the, the it, it is in fact under british rule and i think bankim certainly understood it his ending of anandamat is just that where the goddess tells the hindus that hey i have sent these guys so that you can have a renaissance and you can have a revival use them instrumentally use the british instrumentally just like they are using you instrumentally so especially if you are a hindu nationalist you should view the advent of british rule it is entirely possible after 1761 the third battle of panipat if the east india company hadn't conquered large parts of india that india today may be more like indonesia uh the 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 so they they need to look at those counterfactuals my grandfather always used to say my grandfather was a strong patriotic mysorean and but he used to always tell me hey you know it's all very well but we should look at the counterfactuals if uh, the company hadn't defeated tipu sultan your your name might have been abdullah jang he used to tell me that what what i mean it's a joke it's not meant it's not meant to be a religious controversy but i think the counterfactual in history particularly if you are a hindu nationalist is to remember that the british in, in, in uh, intervention in indian history actually helped the hindus and contemporary hindus of that time including ram mohan roy and bankim chandra chatterjee and vivekananda understood it they all understood that this was in fact the case now this doesn't mean that there was no racism they didn't do bad taxation bad trade policy bad tariffs didn't destroy indian industry i'm not here being a vakil uh, defending every aspect of the raj i am just saying given the historic circumstances and then let us take a look at macaulay's gift now some of the best writing in english today is done by indians 
It was done by an, a Nobel laureate, V.S. Naipaul, as an Indian once removed. And he is considered a master of 20th century English prose. In every subject, you know, whether it is Indian birds by Salim Ali, uh, Vedantic philosophy by Radha Krishnan, Indian humor by Kushwan Singh, uh, you know, the Indian cricket uh, by Ramgua. Every, every aspect of English prose, English poetry, we have been able, so it has been a good gift for us. Without English language, there would have been no Indian National Congress. There would have been no freedom movement. Uh, Madrasis would not have been able to communicate with Bengalis or Punjabis. There would have been no idea of India. In fact, the modern idea, Aurobindo wrote all his stuff in English. The modern idea of India was conceived in English. So, yes, it is a bit humiliating that it was foreigners who imposed that language on us. But I think we need to forget the humiliation, go beyond it, look at the counterfactual. If British rule had not happened, it wasn't very clear that a Hindu confederacy would have dominated India. It could very well have been uh, a series of Muslims, Muslim sovereigns and we might have gone in a very different direction politically. And culturally, I think the acquisition of English was a positive. Uh, and we need to accept that, embrace it. That is why I bring the Rama analogy. Would Ravana have been killed with or without Rama? Yes. But the God sent Rama through Rishyashrita. Would India have progressed with or without English language? Yes. But the gods did send uh, English language through another bachelor, Macaulay. That's why I use that analogy. All right. So just to follow up to that. So then if what if somebody said that, all right, we we get that the English language is a positive tool. But uh, if there is a process uh, where somebody tries to I definitely believe there is some value to the argument where somebody says that I think decolonizing our minds is 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 beneficial in multiple ways. Uh, when I say decolonizing, I don't mean to say you throw the baby out with the bathwater. Uh, I, I want to be very specific over here. Okay. So, so, so the issue is not the English language per se. The issue is maybe there is a unique Indian gaze when it comes to a lot of issues. So. Actually, uh, the most beautiful example of that would be the case of abortion that you have highlighted uh, in the book itself as an example where, I mean, you look at the West, especially the United States of America, and they are at each other's throats when it comes to abortion. And here you have in India, interestingly, recently in this term itself, the Bharatiya Janata Party increased the, the 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 weeks of abortion from I think twenty two or twenty two to twenty four. There was a three to four week extension of uh, the abortion law, and uh, you know you did not have any kind of problem, any kind of thing. So what I'm trying to say is that where does one draw that line? Where does English language and Englishness and that uh, that unique drishti that we need to have from an Indian point of view? How does one differentiate between the two then? You again go back to the great Bengali Raja Ram Mohan Roy. He did not have an inferiority complex. He was an interlocutor as an equal with the English. By the way, he not only learned English, he learned Latin, Greek and Hebrew. He wanted to understand the roots of Western culture, apart from being a scholar of Sanskrit, Bengali and Persian. So he was he was quite, quite a guy. And when he went to London, Hostesses used to vie to invite him to a party. If he came to a party, that party was a hit. 
he was considered a, a, a rock star in the london social scene so there was equality same thing happened with dwaraknath tagore when he went to london i think in the 19th century two things happened the british our then rulers retreated into a rather silly uh, victorian uh, racist uh, social darwinian mode which actually hurt them apart from hurting us and i think our our inferiority complex got uh, a little exaggerated so we started getting into non constructive non equal interlocution uh, i mean th- consider the fact that this guy is a lawyer qualified in england he wears a suit and a bow tie and a hat he is for all practical purposes a loyal citizen of of the empire why are you throwing him out of a train you know it's so stupid he's you know this this was a mistake on both sides and i actually blame the british of 19th century british for this they you know the roman empire lasted for in england lasted for 400 years in india this lasted less than 200 years if they had been more sensible and less racist i think the indo british association call it empire call it commonwealth something else could have lasted for a longer time anyway that's a separate story but we need to look approach this as you said you use the word drishti this is very important as equals as people who have something to offer to the table as people who i mean dipesh chakravarti the historian contemporary historian he talks about reversing the gaze of reversing the gaze where we look and i think that's a very valid way to do it but i don't think that has to be confused with any hysterical anti english position um it in fact it has to be a sober one saying we will use english as an instrument to present ourselves to present our case um in fact i wrote after this book was came out the ayodhya judgment came out yeah so i wrote a piece of that on that in the print i said the ayodhya judgment is the ultimate vindication of british raj first it is written in extremely eloquent english two it is based on principles of law enunciated in india and confirmed by the privy council in london where a deity a god a statue is pronounced as a juristic entity this was done in the calcutta high court subsequently uh, uh, confirmed in the privy council so mm. this idea was basic to parasharan's arguments subramanian swami's argument in the supreme court the second issue was adverse possession which is a very common law idea if you have adverse possession uninterrupted then you have rights but if you have interrupted adverse possessions your rights are to that extent less and mm. the third one was equity despite the fact that you may have lost the property the fact is you know you you did have possession of that for some time and you do have some rights therefore we will give you a compensation five acres the entire judgment is english common law the best aspects of british indian jurisprudence written in english using latin words all the time ultra virus yeah wo all it, it, to my mind it is it is a it tells you that the raj legacy 
is a now i'm not saying every aspect of the raj legacy is good but there are certain good aspects one of which is the constitutional jurisprudence that we have inherited from the raj fair enough now i want to talk about something that you have mentioned at the end of the chapter of the political sphere so i just wanted to know what what is this exactly so you talk about something called the dhritarashtra complex can you elaborate what the dhritarashtra complex is actually you find it more than in politics you find it in indian business mm or you find many business magnates hand over companies to their sons who are not competent and who run down the company that is quite common but basically the dhritarashtra complex is where you do not see the um limitations of your offspring or your family and the damage that they may be causing to you and to the broader political movement and indira gandhi is the best example i think sanjay gandhi did a lot of damage to her and she never saw uh, she was blind to the damage that was being caused to her to her party to the country by her son i mean and there is at least a dozen other such cases among indian political parties and i would argue at least 100 other such cases in indian business families where uh, you know uh, extreme attachment uh, to to the son uh, or to to some child actually leads to the business going down the tubes all right that now is let's the go dhritarashtra if you remember not that he didn't know that duryodhana was a bad guy he was just yeah. willing to overlook yeah so so putra prem and bhai bhatijawad uh, yeah. in short yeah so now let's go into the part where you discuss the cultural sphere so i wanted yeah. to touch upon uh, two three aspects in it so first where you talk about uh, you know so, so again i'm going to read a, a small paragraph where i want you to elaborate on your your thoughts on this so on page 151 you say first it is concerned with the sacred indian culture can never be based on a purely materialistic construct neither can it revolve around a purely human idealism it asserts many times effortlessly and unselfconsciously that humans have a connection with something beyond themselves the currently ignored al basham author of the wonder that was india an outsider has understood it and puts it simply we indians believe in in a transcendental reality beyond the mundane that we deal with every day and we have no problem dealing with the paradox that this so called transcendental reality is in fact a creation and a creature of our own minds so when you're trying to talk about this how does it fit in with our current realities could you uh, could you give me more elaborate examples on how do we fit it into our current realities then okay first of all there is you know increasing acknowledgement in many circles that there is something about human consciousness that is worth studying whether you want to study it through analyzing the neural synapses and the mris of buddhist lamas in meditation or you come on to come back to ramana maharishi's uh, ideas on consciousness the the fact is and i think the the idea that we are only molecules chemicals interacting which is true at one level i think nobody denies that that is what we are but we also have this this uh, whether we like it or not human beings seem to have this this connect with the transcendental and i've used several examples in my book one example the way i think 
uh, Indians are able to deal with this thing is Antaryami is where uh, the, the, the spirit is indwelling. But the same spirit is also transcendent and is there across the universe. So, and, and how do we deal with this paradox? The answer is we don't. We just state it, we acknowledge it, and we move on. Uh, and the best example is, uh, is, is our temples. The Lord is Akhilanda Koti Brahmanda Nayaka. The Lords of tens of millions of universes. That is what he is. And yet, he is present in Puri. He is present in Tirupati. He is present in Rameshwaram, which is a very specific location. So we are able to deal with this paradox. And I think the sacred and the... Even for Indian materialists, by the way, I make that point. Because your thing is called Charavaka. I make the point that the Charava, that in the Mahabharata, when Yudhishthira after the war is going with his brothers, Charavaka come and meet, comes and meets him. And Charavaka is not this hedonistic, eat, drink and be merry materialist. He's a very strong ethical person. He accuses Yudhishthira of gross violence, unnecessary violence, unethical behavior, killing his cousins, and winning a kingdom for what? So even the materialist in India is touched by the sacred. It is not as if the materialist is, uh, you know, like Lenin, let us uh, not st stroke the head, let us strike open the head and uh, strike it open. It's not that kind of violent approach. It's a very ethical, gentle, non-violent approach where the sacred is embraced. So one more point in the cultural sphere and here I want to talk about it because you make a connection between the policy angle uh, and uh, the, the cultural. So uh, uh, the word I think, although you have not used this, is a, this is a word I've, the first time I heard was in the language of Majid Nawaz and Shadi Hamid, who both were analyzing uh, change in Muslim society from both sides. Very interestingly, both use the same word, which is gradualism. So it's where it was very interesting where Shadi Hamid makes the point that, you know, the Muslim Brotherhood is following the strategy of gradualism where slowly but surely we will make the society more Islamic. And Majid Nawaz is saying that the Muslim reformists in, in Muslim society are also using the strategy of gradualism where slowly but surely we will make the society more open. So it was very interesting that uh, I think what you're proposing in, in your book is something similar to that. It's a gradualism. But where you say... Uh, what you have been very critical is that the whole idea of state intervention, and obviously you use multiple examples where uh, of the Haji Ali Darga, the Sabrimala temple, about Dalit women and their education, and many other things. So what, in, according to you, would be the Indian conservative case for uh, changes in society? And where do we draw the line of state intervention then? Let us take the best example we have in living memory. Hindu Marriages Act of 1955, Succession Act of 1956. First proposed in 49. Didn't go through. Ambedkar resigned. He was really upset. But think about it. It was not a parliament elected on adult franchise. It was a very limited parliament. Yes. In fact, from the, in the states, Mysore, Hyderabad and all, Many of them, they were nominated by the king. They were not even elected people in from many of their princely states. For this parliament 
to make a major social reform legislation, I think Panditji rightly felt was inappropriate. He waited for the 52 election, won a thumping majority, let things settle down. Pretty much whatever Ambedkar wanted to do in 49, we did in 55. There was a lot of opposition, a lot of pushback. We Again, we didn't do it by revolutionary change. We didn't come and say, we will cut off heads. It was done by legislative change. There was discussion, back and forth, amendments were made. In fact, in 1956, uh, the, the sons still got disproportionate inheritance in Hindu uh, inherited property. Inherited. So only in recent times that now daughters are getting. So it has been gradual. Gradualism is a good word. I like it also to be constitutional. I don't like it to be revolutionary. I like it to be through legislative change, through judicial verdicts, through committees, consensus. Also, there has to be broad consensus. If there is no broad consensus and if you can't build it, then you fracture society. I think this is the greatness of, of the way in modern India has been building social change. Take Haji Ali Darga. Now the, the, the Muslim women who wanted to enter, they did a very clever thing. They found out that, that 1950-60 women were going there. This restriction is actually of recent origin. And they used that in the argument in the court. They got a court verdict. Now, these are all very important ways that a sensible society negotiates change. A foolish society postpones change until you have a civil war. Alexander Hamilton went to the slaveholders in New York State and said, hey, I'll give you compensation. You free the slaves. They accepted. They took money. They freed the slaves. The stupid South Carolina, Georgia uh, planters, Virginia planters refused when Lincoln offered them the same deal. They had to fight a war and they lost. So, I mean, the, the I think the gradual constitutional change, and but the cost of that war, although Lincoln may have won, there is enduring bitterness in the South. Enduring racism continues, which is not there in New York, because it was done in a very violent way, that change. So conservatives are not for violent change. We are for, we are for change. Constructive change where you don't drop the good things of the past, it has to be consensual, gradual, legislative, constitutional. Also, one more view that stood out to me in the book was, uh, you know, where you talk about the issues connected with Indian Muslims. And uh, you, uh, you make the suggestion that they should not be virtually be seen only from a political prism. And we need to make a sincere effort. It's very interesting because I've been one of those people who has always maintained that Indian Islam needs to be delineated and separated from the global uh, ummah. And we need to present a separate Islam in that sense. So, so, so could you elaborate a bit on that too? See, first of all, we they're either seen as a religious group or a political vote back. Where are they going to vote? Hmm. Uh, and that is absurd because... Islamic contribution of individual Muslims and groups of Muslims to India is enormous in cuisine, in dress, in architecture, in landscape gardening, miniature painting, dance, music, literature. There's a whole host of contributions. That's one. Number two, I have argued somewhere in the culture section that India is the only country where there is a Sufi sacred pilgrimage circuit 
just like the hindus have a pilgrimage circuit uh, from badrinath to rameshwaram to puri to dwarka etc one of my sufi friends from delhi he goes to ajmer comes to ahmedabad comes to bombay goes to gulbarga goes all the way south to nagpur comes back to kadapa goes to bihar sharif then goes to uh, fatehpur sikri and come back comes back to delhi so there is a sufi pilgrimage circuit within within uh, um, uh, india so these are the kinds of things that we need to encourage we need to talk about we need to um, you know bolster because uh, then you you stop having this uh, everybody stop viewing some extra territoriality as as a definition of the indian muslim identity i am saying it is not all right now i wanted to go into uh, the chapter of aesthetics and education now it this part again i want to read it is quite far deep into the into the chapter again i'm at page 223 where uh, I, and i and i i kind of relate to your agony and pain over here so so you written a sympathetic foreigner had has written somewhere that although indians are nice and friendly people they live in the dirtiest city in the world the country in the world for a people with such a strong sense of colors and patterns which govern our visual aesthetic our utter indifference to the filth all around us remains a horrifying puzzle most of our small towns have no sewage systems and manage with unsightly open drains on both sides of every highway and railway track we dump plastic and other solid waste which seems to accumulate forever our major rivers are turning into filthy drains around minor streams and nalas have become fetid we seem to leave construction debris anywhere and everywhere that we choose to despite a few honorable exceptions our temples are filthy and off putting our cities have become homes to numerous stray dogs some have become feral routinely attacking and killing children mosquito borne diseases which are on the decline elsewhere are on the rise in india it seems inconceivable but it is true that indians are dying in large numbers of dengue and malaria and gastrointestinal diseases our insanitary conditions have resulted in the resurgence of a once disappearing disease tuberculosis we are the tb capital of the world now you start this chapter by listing a lot of our beautiful artistic achievements you criticize the orientalists by uh, clearly and i think correctly pointing out that when they said there is nothing in the indian pantheon that were worth its weight in gold is actually a very condescending claim and either you don't get us and maybe you need to change your gaze and then you get into the problems of uh, how we have decayed as a society and how we don't take care of our own monuments the because of obviously uh, a lot of bad government intervention too in many cases where it just seems to, doesn't seem to work so what would be so my question would be how do we have this aesthetic and educational revival and what would be the indian conservative stance then sir yeah i think this is very important and i don't i think if as conservatives we don't get involved here we will be failing in our duty and in our obligation because um, essentially uh there's only two people who have made a big hooha about this in recent times one is mahatma gandhi and one is narendra modi otherwise mm. the entire public discourse in india has completely ignored the aesthetics of dirt if you will or the lack of aesthetics of dirt uh and and the and massive civic failure uh in this naipaul has written about it 
Kavleen Singh routinely writes about it. But public figures who made an issue of this have been uh, Gandhi and Modi. We have to get together, and this has not. We cannot outsource this to the government. Government has a role, but this is a role that is goes beyond the government. In every picnic spot you go to in India, by the way, doesn't matter if it's Masuri or Kunur or uh, any or Mahabaleshwar, you will find plastic. These are educated, rich uh, people who are going there who are throwing plastic right at the point where you're looking. Viewpoint or whatever you call it. So you know, hey, we have to figure out how we, as a people, we as a society, we as communities, as groups, as individuals, improve our sense of the visual aesthetic. One and civic hygienic consciousness. I think it's 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 a shame that we should be the TV capital of the world, uh, and we should we have got to get. Get going on this. It has got to be, and that's one reason I like Modi's. Huh? Modi doesn't take all the uh, obligation as a government. He throws it back to the citizens, saying, "Hey, what are you doing about? It? Why don't you do some cleaning?" He, in one speech, in fact, he tells mothers, "Why don't you bring up your uh, sons better so that they don't uh, go around uh, becoming uh, rapists and violent people when they grow." Become teenagers. He's he is throwing the onus back on citizens, and in the area of cleanliness and hygiene, and even in aesthetics, it's very easy to blame government buildings. They are all ugly. PWD routinely builds ugly buildings. But yeah. what is private sector doing? Entire Bangalore IT sector is all glass and steel imitation Singapore. Hey, don't we have something else we can bring to the world? Is there not some other thing we can talk about in terms of architecture, in terms of um, office aesthetics, in terms of work workplace environment? And I think so. It's not this own. It is a government problem, as you pointed out. But it is a not only a government problem. It's a problem across citizenry. And I think conservative groups, individuals, associations, organizations, we should try and work together to do something about. It. I think to some extent. You know, by the way, conservation and conservative both come from the same root. Some mm. conservation movements are doing a good job. In Bombay, Mumbai, we've got uh, uh, VT station, CST station being uh, improved, uh, the uh, museum being so uh, Bhagajilad Museum. So we are at least today. It is not uh, a requirement that anything gifted to us by the Raj we should neglect and let the buildings fall down. We are going back to doing some of it. I, I saw I, I, every time I go to Hampi, I see a little bit better in terms of uh, conservation and and preservation and maintenance. Slowly, it's happening. Not enough, but we need. And, and I think there is a very strong role for of conservatives in being part of this movement. Uh, by the way, in England, there is something called National Trust. Hmm. Where I, I used to be a member when I lived in England, they gave I think twenty pounds or ten pounds, not a lot. You can become a member, but that money is used to maintain old buildings, gardens. It gives you the right to take walks in inside gardens and so. On. So it's a it's a you know it's a it's a way of getting the entire country interested in the preservation of old buildings, uh, 
uh, old landscapes, beautiful landscapes. I think that's the kind of movement we need to we need to work on. Some of it is happening. Eco tourism is catching on in a big way. A lot of young people are interested in going to the jungle and not ruining the jungle by throwing plastic there. Some of it is happening, not enough. I think we should encourage this and push this this trend along. All right, sir. So before we wrap things up, my last question to you would be: A, uh, what do you? Uh, what, uh, so, what is the follow-up to this book? Uh, do you intend to plan, or do you have any plans to write a follow-up to this? As in, uh, uh, I mean, after I read this book, uh, the first question that struck me, to be very honest, was: uh, I think we need a a, a positive uh, uh, doctrine of some sort. Uh, so you have rightly identified a lot of issues in our society, but uh, my my, I mean, it's a genuine uh, curiosity here. That do you intend to write some sort of a, a plan B? Like, okay, this is how we do these things, and this is my these are your recommendations. See, uh, based on a lot of the feedback that I have got in sessions like this and in other group sessions, there is a case for a second enlarged edition, which might be even twice as long as this which covers many issues that have been left out of here, uh, adds, subtracts, uh, and maybe, uh, uh, you know, points some, some directional manifesto kind of ideas. And I will do that, I think, but I probably will do that in 2022 because I want to accumulate as much of feedback. By 2020, December, I thought I would have because I was planning a trip to London and to the U.S. to also meet up with conservatives there. But all this COVID business, I've, it's all postponed. I'm working on two other books, which are kind of vaguely related to this. One is a book on uh, uh, Mahatma Gandhi as an economist, who I think is a very understudied. Everybody looks at his political doctrines, Satyagraha, nonviolence, Nelson Mandela, like Walesa, Martin Luther King. Everybody's into that. All the academic interest is there. But Gandhi's trusteeship, his Naith uh, Alim, uh, his identity economics, uh, his, his whole range of ideas and economics that he has, uh, I think have been ignored. So I'm that book I'm hoping to come out in the next few months. Another book which I am, which might be just a, like this, either a set of lecture notes converted into a book or a series of essays was something along the lines of revisiting the Raj. I think the Raj has got too much negative publicity uh, over the years. And I think it is important. Uh, and my explanation earlier in this podcast of the Ayodhya judgment might be a good place to begin to say, hey, wait a minute. Let us revisit the Raj. You know, just like people, you know, get upset about, you know, Barber's general destroying a temple. Legitimate, you should be upset. But you also take pride that Barber's great-great-grandson built the Taj Mahal. The two are not necessarily contradictory. Similarly, I think while there are many negatives of British rule, I think it is time we revisited and took a balanced view of it in our own interests. Because until we do that properly, 
frankly, Indian conservatism will never get properly evaluated. I'll tell you why. Take 1942 Quit India Movement. One of the biggest things that many political followers will say, ah, but you didn't participate in the Quit India Movement. And this is something that Congress routinely hurls against uh, RSS, uh, Hindu Mahasabha, except there was no BJP at that. Nobody will point out that Ambedkar, who opposed the Quit India Movement, in fact, he was a member of the Viceroy's Executive Council during the Quit India Movement. E.V. Yeah. Ramaswamy Nayakar was totally opposed to the Quit India Movement. You know, there was, there was it's so, uh, this Communist Party of India supported the British war effort and opposed the Quit India Movement. So the, the idea that one litmus acid test defines uh, and therefore being anti-British Raj kind of defines you uh, as a patriot and not being and saying that there were some good things about the British Raj makes you a non-patriot. I want to kind of and I want to use various examples including British foreign policy. The British foreign policy of the way they dealt with Afghanistan I think was very costly and lots of Indian soldiers died in the process. But it was very sensible. They figured out that every hundred years the Afghans like to invade the plains of northern India. So they said rather than let them do it, we will keep the war there. <laughs> so that let, let, let all the fighting happen in their land. No, these are ideas that I would like to explore in the second book about foreign policy ideas, defense policy ideas of the British Raj, uh, which I think are, are, uh, are important legacies, positive legacies. The negative legacies, in, enough has been written by various people. I will not dwell on that. So that these are the two books. The Gandhi book is ready. That will be out in the next few months. Uh, the other one, I've just started working. All right. I, I, I'm really looking forward to those books. But guys, if you want to buy this book, I have added the, the link to buy the book in the description of the podcast. You can just open the description of the podcast, click, click the link and you can buy the book. I highly recommend to buy this book. In my view, what this book does is it adds to the larger conversation that we should have a society. I totally agree with Mr. Rao when he says that we need to look uh, at the, the Raj, the British Raj. Uh, in a very objective manner. You don't have to agree with all his views, but as no. long as you don't read views that challenge you intellectually, you will never improve in your own views. You will be stuck in an intellectual silo. And that's the worst thing that you can do to you yourself. I think the worst crime that you can do, in, in my view, in your entire life is to close yourself to uh, views that are outside uh, the realm of what makes you comfortable. You have to listen to views that maybe make you uncomfortable. That's the whole point. And that's why it's very important to read different kinds of views. So Mr. Rao, first of all, thanks a lot for writing this book. And I'm really looking forward to the other two books that are going to come. And thank you very much for coming on the Charvak podcast. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. And good luck for many more excellent podcasts. Thank you. Thank you. All right, guys, you know the deal. Please subscribe to the podcast, like the video, share it if you like. You know how to support the podcast. You can go on Patreon. Uh, you see the link on the screen. You can go to patreon.com, uh, Charvak. If you like what I'm doing over here, you can join the membership program. Until then, see ya. Take care. Goodbye.